Welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby. Uh, good evening. And uh, joining me as always is Ed Davis. How are you, sir? You alright? Yeah, I'm, I'm very well. I've had a nice day of watching or re-watching Ang Lee films, specifically for this episode. Yeah, because we're doing uh, one of them artist profiles, that what we like doing. Um, and in the, the kind of the spirit of our ongoing commitment to diversity, we did a woman last week. Imagine that, a woman. Uh, we're going to do someone who's not white. Uh, as you say, Ang Lee, the only non-white director to win Best Picture. That's terrible, isn't it, Ed? Uh, is that true? I know he's the, the only Asian uh, person yeah. of Asian descent to win one. Yeah, the only non-white actor uh, director to win uh, to win Best Director. He's done it twice. Uh, it feels a little bit like he's showboating. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like he's uh, stopping everyone else from kind of climbing up the ladder. I know, trying to break through that glass ceiling. Um, which oh wait, didn't I can't... Alf- Alfonso Cuarón make these Hispanic? So, oh, okay, all right, Have and it. and uh, and too. Oh Jesus Christ! It's like oh, this is Nigel. You Farage's... let one in. <laughs> this is Nigel Farage's worst nightmare. <laughs> um, it's, it's just like uh, I, I, you, you won't have seen it because, like, you've emigrated and you know you've probably uh, done right there. But like with the the election, uh, hang on, when this goes out, it will be last week. Um, and UKIP would have swept to victory, um, but no, there's a, they're one of their really awful kind of um, uh, propaganda posters is uh, the White Cliffs of Dover with three escalators going up it, as if to say, oh, it's this easy to get in now. So you know, let's do it. It's it's horrible, but that's, um, that's basically just sideshow Bob's uh, campaign against Quimby, where he's got escalators going out of the prison. Yeah, that's exactly exactly that, but the other way. They are literally cartoonish. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, anyway, what the fuck? We're talking about a respected artist and we've gone to Nigel Farage and Sideshow Bob. Um, why would we pick Ang Lee? Uh, because he's someone who has been working you know, pretty much constantly for uh, 23 years now. He's someone who has worked in Hollywood, but he's also made independent films. He's worked in... China and Taiwan. He's, uh, as you say, he's won two Oscars, but he's also directed films in kind of a slew of uh, non-Oscar-friendly dra- uh, genres. Mm. He reminds me very much of someone like someone old-fashioned, a bit like someone like Howard Hawks, mm-hmm. who just appears to be trying to make amazing films in every genre because he's given it a go. And like, what strikes me as amazing about Ang Lee's work and why I'm really interested in talking about him is you'd expect when someone comes from uh you know another like industry uh, another kind of like you know another kind of country's film industry you'd expect their films to take on their english language films to take on like somewhat of a kind of like outsider kind of viewpoint all the time just by default um but he manages to kind of really kind of not make that show yeah i think it, it definitely helps that he was educated in the US in, in certainly in his film work because he was in the same uh, same NYU film class as Spike Lee no relation um, no no relation although I, I would like to imagine that when they were students together they would do that all the time mm-hmm. just go around cr- saying they were cousins you get Christopher um, Lee to pretend to be their dad <laughs> 
oh, there's a sitcom that I would have liked to have seen. Um, mm. Or we can still make it, they're all still alive. Yeah, sure. Let's make some calls. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like uh, he, he was educated in kind of the American film industry and then kind of took those, or at least, you know, with, with American teachers, including, I think, Scorsese probably, because I know Scorsese taught um, Spike Lee at some point. But I think having an outsider perspective, but being kind of educated in uh, American techniques is probably why he he is able to kind of flip between the two and his, uh, you know, there's none of that kind of awkwardness that you see when you get emigre directors coming over and making their kind of English language debut. And also uh, it probably helps that his long-time producing and writing partner is uh, James, James Seamus, who is an American. So even if there might have been that awkwardness at some point, there's someone that kind of smooth out the edges. Mm. It's fascinating. We, you kind of brought up the other day, kind of when we were kind of talking off air um, about how um, when we did the uh, episode on creative partnerships, um, it didn't occur to us immediately to do Ang Lee and James Seamus, which is kind of peculiar because they've got a, a working relationship like literally no one else. So James Seamus was he he wrote Ang Lee's first three films, which were all made in Taiwan, in Mandarin. Uh, which is kind of peculiar way for it to work. And he's he's worked on every single film that Ang Lee has done, apart from Life of Pi. Yeah, it's an incredibly close relationship. And, you know, if you see them interviewed together, they do just kind of seem like two people who are immensely uh, comfortable with each other. And obviously they've benefited hugely professionally from working together. But there's that kind of uh, symbiosis that you, you only really see in creative partnerships that have gone on for an incredibly long time. That they really do seem to have an innate understanding of each other. Mm. And he's not working with him on his next film, so I reckon he's just like, do you know what, fuck this Joker, I'm on. <laughs> I've got two Oscars now, I don't need you, Seamus. I think, I think Seamus is, uh, he is, he is not working on it because he's writing and directing his debut. Is he? Yeah, so I'm not sure if that represents a, a kind of fatal break in their career or if they just feel like they've reached the point where they, they are happy to kind of you know, see other people for a bit. Mm, yeah. Let's just hope they don't kind of have to kind of try and patch things up in a kind of really awkward uh, motorway service station type affair. Because <laughs> um, that would be terrible for all concerned. Anyway, um, like, like uh, regular listeners will know, we kind of break down um, uh, the kind of filmography of our, our chosen artists into uh, kind of like five categories. And the first one we're going to talk about is uh, Ang Lee's Breakthrough. And uh, we're not going to talk about his debut. We're going to talk about... Um, Probably his kind of biggest successful crossover from his first three films made in Taiwan. We're going to talk about Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. But this film makes me hungry like no other film. <laughs> I have to say, apart from maybe the great outdoors when John Candy has to eat that massive steak. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's um, yeah the, the opening, uh, the credit sequence, everyone talks about um, To Kill a Mockingbird having the greatest credit sequence of all time, and it probably does. But yeah, the whole thing where the credits in Eat, Drink, Man, Woman are just going and, and he's preparing this kind of like really elaborate, delicate Chinese banquet, just like dribbling on myself all the whole time. Yeah, I, I watched it today right after having lunch and I was, you know, I felt full and satisfied and 
within the first 10 minutes, I was thinking, God, I really need to order a Chinese or something. Yeah. <laughs> just being really, really hungry. Mm. But I want to eat something that's even, you know, just kind of a poor approximation of the great work that is being portrayed on screen. And you're right, it is a film that leaves you feeling incredibly hungry. It's, it's I think that and uh, maybe Big Night are probably the two films I've seen that are the best at getting across kind of the sensual texture of food on screen. Mm-hmm. and makes you really feel like I know exactly how that food would feel if I could have some of it right now. Mm-hmm. So um, it, you saw it today. I've not seen it for many years, but correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it's a kind of family drama uh, about a widowed grandfather who's also a kind of master chef um, who uh, starts cooking lunches for his grandson. Is that right? And his grandson gets to take much to the envy of all his friends, gets to take these really super elaborate um, Chinese dishes to work uh, to school and uh, eat them in front of uh, some very hungry looking kids uh, it, that's nearly right he's a he's a widowed <sighs> father he's got three adult daughters who all live at home with him one who is a kind of teacher who's become a born again Christian one who's works in a Wendy's and one who's kind of a career woman who works as an executive at a big company whose job whose role is never really fully established and the young child that he uh, gives the food to is the daughter of uh, like a family friend, right? Okay, and, and he you. kind of uh, makes food for her because he initially it seems like it's because he's you know kind of growing distance from his daughters. The the career woman has put out put a uh, her savings into buying an apartment so that she can move out, and it seems like the family dynamic is going to be. Uh, broken up and but then as the film progresses it the the, you know other reasons are kind of like introduced into it Mm. and um this is part of this is kind of the middle uh chapter of a kind of loose trilogy that he made of of kind of films he made in taiwan um which kind of put him on the mark uh kind of you know made him a kind of name to watch on the world cinema scene he got a couple of uh best foreign film uh oscar nominations i think for his first couple uh, yeah, this is actually the last of them because the the first one was a film called Pushing Hands, uh, which stars the same actor, the same actor, old older actor is in all three of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then his second one was The Wedding Banquet, and then Eat, Drink, Man, Woman was a third of them. But Pushing Hands didn't see a US release until after the the second and third ones became successful. Mm. So that one was seen last, uh, which is weird because. Uh, both Pushing Hands and The Wedding Banquet, large parts of it are shot in the US uh, because they're they're more about the interplay of Western and Eastern kind of societies and different generational conflicts. What about these three films and uh, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman in particular um, kind of uh, flagged him up as, as, as a kind of person to direct Sense and Sensibility, his first kind of English language film? Um, what about his his work in Taiwan made the studio executives think, hey, this is a good idea? Uh, I think it probably is... This is something that crops up in a lot of his later work as well. He's someone who's very interested in repressed emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, there, are, there are parts, certainly, of Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, where people are fighting very, very hard not to talk about how they're feeling or what they're thinking. And there is one shot in particular um, after a a disastrous meal towards the end of the film where the the uh, middle daughter the uh, one who's the executive 
uh, is kind of just kind of looking on and kind of grief stricken and there's she's framed in such a way that it's almost like something from a Douglas Sirk melodrama mm-hmm. uh, you know it's just kind of this this sense of kind of roiling emotions bubbling under the surface that she would never dare uh, talk about and I think that even though you know the the, the stories of uh, t- contemporary Taiwan or, or Taiwanese immigrants might seem about as far away from the lives of uh, you know sort of 18th century British people uh, it definitely you can definitely see why his interests in the, the films he made in his kind of native language would translate to sense and sensibility because they're all about kind of families they're all about uh, strict ideas of what is uh, considered acceptable in society and uh, things like that mm. yeah so and sense sensibility is 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 a kind of um a pretty good uh, austin adaptation i think they kind of have a bit of a reputation for being quite stuffy and kind of a bit kind of boring but sense and sensibility is very good written by emma thompson it's uh a solid entry. I'd recommend that anyone who wants to kind of watch it and have their preconceptions uh, reversed. Yeah, that one and probably Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice are the two best ones for getting across the fun of Austin's writing because Jane Austen was a very funny writer and a very lively writer and for some reasons when you take those words uh, and put them on screen for a lot of people that means there are lots of nice costumes and people being very prim and proper as opposed to kind of having a sense of fun to it and you really get a sense of the fun and the kind of verve of the writing in, in a sense and sensibility. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's no clueless, but you know <laughs> what is what is. Yeah. So yeah, that's uh, eat, drink, man, woman. Uh, watch it if uh, you're hungry, um, but always have takeaway menu on standby. Um, next one we're going to talk about. Uh, we'll get we'll get out of the way now because the man's done a lot of fine work. We're going to talk about kind of what's considered his worst film and. He does have kind of one film that sticks out. Uh, he's got he's got quite a few oddities in his uh, oeuvre, but one film sticks out as being his uh, worst. And we're going to talk about 2009's uh, Taking Woodstock. And you're real security? What? Well, you don't look... Okay, I may be a grandfather, but that doesn't... You're a grandfather? I married young, the night before I shipped out for Korea. You were in Korea? Semper Fi, little prick. Sergeant, U.S. Marine Corps. I'm kidding. Yeah. Wow. That's me with the cigar. The other one was the love of my life. Killed. Sniper. I went out on patrol, found the Chinese pissant who did it, and broke his neck with my own hands. Jesus. Actually, I made that last part up, but I would have if I'd gotten hold of the son of a bitch, and I'd do it today if I found him. Vilma. You're hired. I think this could easily qualify as his worst film, in my opinion, because uh, I, when we talked about doing it earlier today, I'd forgotten I'd seen it, <laughs> which is never a good sign. Uh, it's uh, Dimitri Martin uh, at Woodstock is about all I can remember from it. There's uh, is Imelda Staunton his mum. Yeah, Imelda Staunton is his mum playing a a Jewish stereotype that makes Watto from The Phantom Menace look subtle. Um, wow. Yeah, I was I was watching it. And I was thinking this is really borderline offensive. <laughs> if it was not a real person playing this in a cartoon, I would think it was horribly anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so she plays his mum. Uh, basically, she and uh, Henry Goodman, who plays his dad, they own a kind of motel uh, in the Catskills in kind of upstate New York. It's 
uh, run down horrible place. They uh, kind of cut corners every way they can, and their the bank is going to foreclose on them. And Dimitri Martin reads about the fact that uh, the what will become the Woodstock Festival has been kicked out of the location where it was meant to be held. So he offers up his family's land as the new location for it. They come there and they say, this looks terrible, we're not going to use this. And he ends up introducing them to Eugene Levy, who's the guy who owns all of the uh, land that ends up being used as the actual festival. But because uh, Dimitri Martin kind of got the whole thing set up, his family become you know, central in the organisation and they rent out their rooms, they sell tickets and things like that. And it then becomes about the kind of uh, culture clashes the these kind of hippie types come into this uh kind of very kind of well-to-do provincial uh highly jewish and middle class uh area of new york highly jewish that could be the tagline of, of the <laughs> film um but yeah it's it's um from memory uh quite broad it is but it's it, it has this really weird i think one of the the big problems with it for me is that it has this kind of, certainly beginning, it has this kind of real broadness. You have things like Liev Shriver showing up as a transvestite former Marine and he kind of works as security and it starts off really broad. And as it goes along, it, it kind of tries to be a bit more subtle and it suggests that there is a more interesting kind of comedy drama to be had here. But by that point, it's already gone so full bore on the uh, on the, the broadness and, you know, Emil Hirsch is a... Uh, as a Vietnam War veteran who's constantly having flashbacks to Charlie chasing after him and things like that, that it can't really pull it back enough to work as perhaps the more understated film that would have suited Ang Lee's sensibilities. Yeah, it it didn't do great at the box office either. It, um, well, it did every bit as uh, as badly as, as as we've made it sound would suggest. <laughs> um, but um, why do you think that was? I just think that it was a, a real mismatch of a, a mi- uh, it was a real mismatch. Mitch, the fuck <laughs> Basically, I don't think that the material suited the people who are involved. I don't think that Dimitri Martin, who's not terrible in it, but he doesn't really have the like at the start of the film. You kind of get the sense maybe they shot it in sequence because at the start of the film he feels like he's really embarrassed to be the lead of a film like he really doesn't feel like he should be there um and then as it goes along he finds kind of moments of subtlety and he finds uh these kind of interesting shading uh in there but angley is not someone who can do broad comedy that well i think he can do melodrama really well and he can do he can kind of add, add elements of comedy into it but he's not very good at kind of selling really big like laugh lines and gags. Mm. And neither is Dimitri Martin because obviously his stand-up is based on being incredibly low-key and that sort of thing doesn't really chime well with the kind of wacky hippie craziness going on around him. Mm. And he, obviously in the film, he can't bust out a a flip chart and do some (laughs) pictures like he does in his stand-up because uh, his stand-up is incredibly funny. Um, But yeah, it, it just does not translate well to... Uh, to that role, I don't know. He hasn't done many films to Andrew Martin, so I wonder what I wonder whether this is why because he got his kind of fingers burnt by some joker called Ang Lee. Yeah, I, th- I remember him being interviewed on WTF years ago, and he did talk about it as being kind of. I think he said it was an experience that he enjoyed, but it was 
the it was just such a strange thing that he probably hasn't really kind of been drawn back to it and certainly not when your first major role is headlining a film by someone who has you know only a few years previously had one best director that gets completely savaged and forgotten about um I, w- I will say this about taking woodstock it's not i think by most people's standards it's not a bad film it's like it's a film that's perhaps misguided and kind of has uh elements that don't work but it is kind of a film that's well-meaning and that i think in some moments does get what the kind of importance of Woodstock was to American culture in a very kind of visceral way. I think in my my favourite moment in the film, uh, I think it's telling that the, fa- the best moment in this comedy is a moment that is not funny at all, um, is when Demetri Martin's character has, you know, that after the festival starts, the kind of running gag is he keeps trying to get to Woodstock, to go to the actual location and watch it and keeps getting sidetracked by people he meets along the way. And he does, uh, he does acid with um, Paul Dano, and they then go to the edge of where the concert is happening. And his, he, you see his perspective where all the crowds suddenly morph into kind of this undulating wave of energy, and it kind of uh, calls to mind the thing Hunter S. Thompson wrote about being in San Francisco in the mid nineteen sixties and being on this kind of being able to see the high water mark where the wave crested and things like that. Mm. And it's just a really wonderful moment that, you know, you just see Demetri Martin kind of has tears streaming down his face as he's, his character is realising the kind of the sense of community and the togetherness that this festival represents. And I think that is probably one of the best examples I've ever seen of someone trying to communicate why Woodstock was special for the people who went there, uh, which you don't really see in a lot of films about it. But like a lot of the time, it just feels like, you know, there's lots of split screen in it where they're clearly kind of referencing the Woodstock documentary and I think that there you kind of think well the Woodstock documentary they used lots of split screen because they had thousands of hours of footage and about 12 editors working on it and they had to get it there sometimes this feels just kind of like an affectation I think a lot of the film feels a little too affected mm, yeah yeah it does well you say it's not by most people's standards a bad film but by Ang Lee's standards it's it's kind of obviously his his weakest yeah i mean that certainly in when we're talking about this whole thing it's not it's nowhere near as bad as uh you know when we did, talked about clint eastwood you know it's not as bad as jersey boys and when we talked about uh susan sarandon it's not as bad as the big wedding you know it's it's more just kind of like when you set such a high bar for yourself and you don't you you don't achieve it it will always kind of look a lot more disappointing even if what mm. you're doing is just by most people's standards, you say, yeah, it was okay. So from his worst to his uh, most successful, um, we'll talk about a couple of films here because we're kind of uh, judging success uh, in a couple of different ways. Um, yeah, his most financially uh, successful worldwide uh, is his most recent, which is Life of Pi. I never thought a small piece of shade could bring me so much happiness that a pile of tools, a bucket, a knife, a pencil might become my greatest treasures or that knowing Richard Parker was here might ever bring me peace. In times like these, I remember that he has as little experience of the real world as I do. We were both raised in a zoo by the same master. Now we've been orphaned, left to face our ultimate master together. Without Richard Parker, I would have died by now. 
My fear of him keeps me alert. Tending to his needs gives my life purpose. Big Oscar winner, um, kind of like critically lauded. Um, tough job to make a film out of uh, that material. Uh, been long in the works for a long time. Various directors have passed on it. What would have attracted Ang Lee to it? Uh, I think that it kind of played. I think what probably attracted him to it was the, uh, the the way that it played to his sense as a visual director. I think that one of the things that is kind of great about Ang Lee is that on one level he is a great dramatist and someone who can really great get great performance out of people, but he's someone who is also you know a, a kind of a strong stylist. Even in some of his early films, if you look at Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. There's a scene kind of very early on in that film where the uh, the main the, the 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 dad character has to go to his restaurant late at night and you see him walk through the kitchen in kind of an unbroken shot and then you also see you know a very slow pan of the uh, the restaurant and there's kind of these very big vivid colors there and I think that with uh, Life of Pi I think he probably looked at it as an ex- as a chance to be just kind of so expressive with the colors because he's working in a story which which exists in the realm of almost pure metaphor that has these kind of really fantastical things that allows him to kind of play with 3D technology in a way that um, could kind of really push the medium in some way. And even, I think that uh, he, you can see in you know some of his, his earlier films before then, certainly something like Hulk or Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, he's someone who I think likes a challenge and who likes to kind of Take take something that people are doing and really kind of push it as far as it will go. I will confess that I don't really like Life of Pi mm. very much. Now, I have an issue. I um, not an issue. Just like I I struggle to get past special effects sometimes, mm-hmm. um, and it's okay when it's in some kind of like you know if it's like Godzilla or something. Because like Godzilla's not real and that, but like, like boats are real, mm. tigers are real, <laughs> small Indian boys are real. Why not get a bit of danger into it? Let's not fanny around with CGI. Everyone said, "Oh, that tiger looked amazingly real." Fuck it, no, it didn't. Make it realer. I want to <laughs> see him. I want to see him burn through Indian kids like, like film stock. But for me, I'm always there's always a there's always a, a barrier there for me. Like I loved the bit in Life of Pi. I could have sat and watched Rafe Spall and Erfan Khan talking and eating for hours, telling that story without me having to see it. I could have watched that. But as soon as it got like on the boat, I just I wasn't that interested. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just me. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of the opposite. I mean, I did like the Rafe Spall and Ivan Khan scenes a lot. I thought that those two guys really sold what could be a very stilted framing device. Um, even when you kind of get to the end and they have to kind of say what the lessons of the films are in the dialogue, which is the sort of thing that very rarely comes across well on screen. But I think when you have something like that where you, you're basically saying this is pretty much just a fable and you can have these kind of amazing crazy visuals to me it's more kind of like is it feels more like you're entering the realm of something like star wars where it's basically a fantasy film and then i don't mind that the effects are so kind of vivid and uh a kind of not really striving for realism 
Mm. I mean, I don't, I don't mind um, st- the stylistic elements of it. Mm-hmm. I mind when it's going out of its way um, to realise something as photo real. Right. Okay. Um, like you know, the the tiger looked amazing. It looked genuinely amazing. In five years' time, it'll still look good. It won't look as good as what's happening in five years' time. And I always, I always feel like when there's a film like that, it's always trying to push the envelope to the point where it's the achievement is more important rather than the story. And the book of uh, Life of Pi is very much about storytelling and kind of tall tales and you know things like that, and you know why we tell stories and and things. And you know, I, I felt like the film got caught up in in realizing a tiger rather than uh, you know telling a story. It looked great and photo real, but I don't think I'll ever watch that film again. Yeah, I'm kind of even though I really really liked it, and and it was a film that I you know kind of responded to for the reasons of it being about you know storytelling and the that kind of you know Joan Didion idea of be, of stories are things we tell ourselves to live and things like that. I think that uh, I, I it's not a film that I've ha- had a huge desire to rewatch, even though it's on. HBO like it's seemingly twelve times a day, you know it's it's a film that I I haven't felt the need to revisit the way that a lot of his other films I have with a lot of his other films and it kind of reminds me a little bit of um, a little bit of Gravity in that regard. Like Gravity mm. is a film that I really enjoyed in the cinema and you know thought was just a fantastic visual experience, but it was also a film where I think that that is like a theatrical experience. It's not something that I'll ever be able to recreate at home. So I might as well just kind of live with the kind of the vivid memory of it rather than try and actually, you know, rewatch it and find that it doesn't quite hold up in a, anything other than, a, you know, something with Dolby surround sound or uh 4k projection. Mm. Uh, like, I wonder, like, I wonder what, um, life of pie would have been like if, if everything, but, uh, Fankan and Rave Spall talking was animated. Mm. You know, rather, you know, really kind of beautifully stylistically animated. That would have been amazing. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. For me, it, it didn't quite work as well as I think everyone else did. I mean, who did he beat out in the Oscar that year? Uh, it it would have been against uh, Lincoln, I think. Spielberg. 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 Ah, oh, Spielberg. <laughs> he was the future armor directing robot. Um, yeah. No, uh, Spielberg, I think, was the front runner that year because that was the year of Argo and, the, and Ben Affleck wasn't nominated. Oh, yes, that's right, yeah. I can see why it was successful because the book was hugely successful mm-hmm. and it had the, the kind of you have to see it on a big screen factor. Definitely. Uh, which is, seemed to be what everyone was saying. Um, we talked, so there was kind of, we could talk about more than one kind of most successful film. Um, also incredibly successful for him in, in, a, in a kind of different context was uh, Crouch and Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah, because that was a that was a film that had uh, it still has the record for being the most successful f- uh, foreign film of all time in the US. It earned uh, about 128 million dollars in 2000, so that's about 170 million now. That's uh, crazy. Yeah, and it was uh, for a a genre, the wuxia genre of filmmaking that Americans, certainly Americans in kind of a big mainstream way, had never really been exposed to. Mm. Yeah, it was it was kind of like that big kind of let's add some respectability to uh, this genre um, 
with Ang Lee doing like, uh, even though fans of uh, Chop Socky pit, uh, pictures had, uh, you know, been like, you know, there's, there's been amazing artistry in this genre for ages, but all of a sudden it's getting kind of wild notices from serious cinema fans. Yeah, and I think a large part of that is probably the fact that it was Ang Lee directing it. He was someone who had developed a certain amount of critical uh, credibility to it, but also he's someone who knows what Western audiences are interested in. I think that he brought that kind of knowledge uh, in in order to kind of highlight the elements that would make it really broadly appealing to people outside of just kind of Chinese audiences where, you know, he kind of amps up the kind of romance and the kind of the the kind of very big uh heroic elements in a way that could really play would would play to chinese audiences but would also play you know everywhere else and clearly it did because the film was a big success uh worldwide and and in the u.s in a kind of way that no one even with their, their kind of intentions of making a film that would expose audiences to this genre uh in a way that no one was in, anticipating Mm, mm. I've got a confession to make. I don't really like uh, <laughs> um, uh, Crouching Tiger and Dragon uh, that much, but that's less to do with the fact that it's Ang Lee's film or anything. It's just I don't particularly like uh, like uh, martial arts films. Sure, I mean, I it's it's not my favorite. I think I just, I would probably prefer uh, of that kind of early two thousands run um, House of Flying Daggers and Hero. The, the kind of Zhang Yimou films, I think, have they they just kind of feel a little more subtle. Like I think that there's a, there is a broadness to Crouching Tiger because they're aiming it at uh, a Western audience that those other films don't have. Those films feel more like they're they're, they're being made with a Chinese sensibility, and they just happen to be getting a broad release because Crouching Tiger was a huge success. Um, I do I do like a lot of the choreography in Crouching Tiger. I think that. Uh, uh, Chow and fats great in it, and Zhang Zihi is uh, is really really fantastic actress in it and everything. But yeah, it's, it's certainly not one of my favorites of his. Even though I think that it is a tremendous achievement for you know, even if it uh, baffled audiences who watched this and like why are they kind of floating around through the air like that, um, and who had no understanding of the genre, the fact that it introduced people to it is is you know kind of incredible. Mm, mm, yeah, it's a good gateway film if you're into that kind of thing. There's some kind of pretty amazing cinematography in that, and uh, yeah, some kind of great wire work if, uh, if that's your thing. It's not mine, just saying. Uh, one of the most exciting reasons to pick Ang Lee uh, for artist profile, uh, well, for me anyway, uh, was in a chance to talk about um, one of his oddities, and he is a, a director who is kind of like Ed said at the top of the show. Um, tried to kind of straddle a lot of genres and kind of do a lot of different things and try and never repeat the same thing twice. Um, and he certainly didn't when he signed on to make an Incredible Hulk movie, um, which to this day, I still don't know if it's very good or not. Um, so yeah, this is his oddity, The Hulk. Bruce, hey, you there? Look, um... I think I screwed up my father. It's, it's like he suspects you or something. I don't know. I'm, I was so impatient, like always, and I didn't hear him out. I don't know. I, I just think that they're planning something with the lab. So, um, call me. 
What are your thoughts, Ed? Because I genuinely don't have any, any clue at all. Uh, I remember liking it a lot when I saw it in the cinema, way more than all of my friends did at school. Uh, this came out in 2003, so I probably would have been 16 or 17, probably 16 if it came out in the summer. And I just remember being kind of a little overwhelmed by it because you go in, you think it's going to be the Hulk, he's going to turn green and then he's going to smash it up and there's going to be radiation and everything. And it does that uh, a lot. There's lots of tanks being thrown around and Mm -hmm. jumping a lot. But also there's this kind of very strong um, kind of psychological drama going on in this whole Oedipal thing with his dad played by uh, Nick Nolte, I believe. Yeah. At his most gravelly and barely coherent. Um, Yeah, and it just kind of delves into the kind of psychology of the character in a way that, uh, you know, X-Men and the Spider-Man films hadn't done prior to that. Mm, Absolutely. Um, I I will say this much uh, for Hulk. Um, My kind of summation of it is that um, there's a lot of amazing things in the Hulk. Um, Most notably, the way that it's edited and put together, Mm. there's kind of like sliding kind of uh, dissolves and wipes that does an astonishing job of making it look like a living comic with panels and everything. And and some of the transitions are, you know, kind of exhilarating to watch. Uh, It's remarkably uh, well put together and captures the tone of a comic through its editing like nothing I've ever seen. Conversely, (laughs) Conversely, Ed, it features a scene in which Hulk fights a giant poodle (laughs) <laughs> yeah that is, is the, one of the more regrettable scenes I do think that you're, you're right in terms of the style and I think at this point where we, we're so used to kind of comic books having a very uh, kind of a house style really I mean when we talked about the Avengers Age of Ultron last week um, we talked about how that film has kind of quite a chaotic visual style and it doesn't really have anything and the, you know, there's a, there is there is kind of a certain sameness to a lot of the Marvel films, and no one really in in film in comic book filmmaking, you know, tries to make films that kind of arty in that way, and to try and mimic the look of the comics that much, except for you know Zack Snyder who does it in a way that's kind of slavish and dull, mm. um, or Edgar Wright who does it and gets slapped down by the world by the film not being a success. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, that's one of the things that I, I really like about Hulk because it does make it. It, it kind of came across at the point where you know X Men had come along and been a success, Blade had come along and been a success, uh, Spider Man had come along and been an absolutely massive success the year before. And I think there was the th- that general sense that we need to get these comic book films out there now, and people weren't really. Uh, there was such a gold rush to kind of try and make these films as quickly as possible that no one was really paying attention to what Ang Lee was doing. Mm. <laughs> I think they were more interested in getting a Hulk film and less interested in kind of having it be a kind of conservative and kind of very cleanly put together Hulk film. So it's kind of messy and weird in a way that a lot of its contemporaries weren't. And I think that that's, that's one of the things that really appeals to me about it. Mm. It is 
so peculiar. Um, like, I mean, if, even if you just compare it to um, the Louis Leterrier Incredible Hulk, uh, the kind of attempt to reboot the character a few years later, it's quite kinetic, it's quite kind of comic booky. Uh, it does fit into that MCU uh, house style that you've just talked about. Um, and then you, you look at um, Ang Lee's Hulk, and there's like a minute or two minute long scene in the middle of a kind of a thing where Hulk has just thrown some tanks around, where he sits down and stares at a bit of driftwood to try and calm down. And then, then continues being chased. It's just like, <laughs> how on earth is... Who signed off on this? Who thought that like audiences would go for this? Was was the um, the audience for superheroes uh, movies at that time not as clearly defined as it is now? I think that def- that that definitely probably played a big part in it, and also there was probably a sense that you know p- people probably thought it was just a, th- a fad because you know that there'd been a couple of films that were really successful no there were a couple of films that were sort of successful and one film that was a huge hit i think that people thought they would just try and get another couple of hits out there before people moved on i don't think people assumed that all films would be comic book movies in a couple of years um otherwise they probably would have clamped down a bit on it mm. it, it, it it still just seems such like a like a wrong-headed project to put together like but it's so weird in the sense that he brought Seamus with him to like write the script and stuff. It wasn't like really tightly guarded by, by Marvel. They just seemed to let him do what they want. And when he turned in what he wanted, they would, they must have just been like, yeah, cool, let's just put that out and hope for the best. And like this weird thing where they'd kind of... Uh, I, I remember at the time reading a, a, an interview with Ang Lee and he was like, you know, we're making this kind of like Greek tragedy. And then I just stop and think, it's the fucking Incredible Hulk. <laughs> it's like yeah sure you kind of allude to those things but like it's so r- ridiculously serious um but then also some of it's amazing but then other bits of are, are absolute shambles well, it's, it's, it's 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 such a weird one it it definitely feels like an auteurist project like it definitely feels like angley invested a lot of himself in in trying to realize a very specific vision of this character in a way that you know, I don't think you get with a lot of the comic book films being made now. I mean, you got that with Christopher Nolan because he kind of got in under the wire and made films that made a huge amount of money. Mm-hmm. So obviously they kind of can conform to his vision. But a lot of them is like, the, you know, when you hear that a young promising director has been has landed a, uh, a comic book film, there's kind of a sense of, yay, that guy's, you know, going to make a lot of money and he's going to get a lot of exposure. Or that girl, but usually that guy. Mm. Or that girl for a little bit, and then they fire her. Yeah. Um, but you know, then there's also that sense of where you just kind of think, how are they going to impose their personality, and what is this kind of huge monumental machine that's kind of driving this economy forward of all of these different superhero films? And I think that uh, Angley's Hulk is one of the the kind of rare examples of someone who got in just under the wire before superhero films became such big business that everyone started thinking, yeah, we can't really take too many risks on this. And I mean, it seems like a massive risk if you, if you think about how he kind of put that together, especially Nick Nolte, who, like you say, um, is kind of frazzled on, in that film. And that is just after his kind of infamous uh, DUI arrest, where for those mm. of you not keeping up, he was arrested for driving under the influence of Rehypnol. Um, that not only had he administered himself, but he had made himself 
uh, in his own he's in his own lab, <laughs> uh, and his performance in Hulk. Um, I mean, I want to say performance. I get the impression that he just wandered onto the set, and they just they just they just kept the cameras going because, I mean, fuck, dude, I don't know what he's on about half the time. Um, it's kind of like you know when they talk about Terence Malick's style of filmmaking, they'll just kind of get distracted by a butterfly and just kind of follow it around for a while and then get back to the story. I feel like Nick Nolte's with that with films. He just kind of like is constantly wandering around Hollywood, and then directors are kind of like, oh, don't, no one, no one spook him. <laughs> Let's just get what we can. Yeah. Let's just. Cap- Tom Hardy, pretend he's your dad. Yeah. Let's just capture this uh, nature's gift. Uh, <laughs> it's a miracle, the miracle of Nolte. Um, but yeah, I mean, by all means, it is worth seeing. Uh, it's a it's a million times better than the Louis Leterrier Hulk, um, uh, but still manages to be kind of baffling uh, in every way. Although uh, I found out the other day that Ang Lee performed a lot of the motion capture for the Hulk. So when oh. you, when you actually see the Hulk um, wrestling that giant poodle, uh, that's Ang Lee, um, dignity intact. <laughs> Um, but yeah, he did that as a very early kind of motion capture type thing. Um, yeah, so yeah, that's the Hulk. Check it out. Um, when talking about a kind of master filmmaker like Ang Lee, we talk about his best film. It's a little tricky. Uh, I think we kind of narrowed it down uh, to one of two. Uh, Broke Back Mountain was a very kind of strong contender. Um, that's a kind of a wonderful film, um, which again is you know, markedly different from the rest of his his work, um, but, you know, has enough of his stuff in it. But we're going to go for the slightly more left-field choice. Um, we're going to talk about uh, 1997's The Ice Storm. How are the parental units functioning these days? Dad's doing his up-with-people routine. Is that good or bad? It's just you develop a sense if things are going to work out or if they won't. I have a husband. I don't particularly feel the need for another. Now, this particular kind of... Uh, is it is it just is it post Watergate? It is, isn't it? Or is it at around Watergate? It's yeah. It's kind of during Watergate. It starts with um, uh, Christina Ricci watching his uh, "I am not a crook" speech, which is what he made uh, the speech he made not long before he was forced to resign. Mm-hmm. So it's as the Watergate. It's as the Watergate scandal is kind of unfurling. Yeah. So this this. Um kind of uh, delicate, kind of like keenly observed uh, tale of, of kind of American kind of suburbia and and uh, kind of middle class uh, life shot through by a Taiwanese director manages to be so on the money uh, and uh, so good that like, I bet you there was a lot of American filmmakers who were kicking themselves that they hadn't managed to do that. Yeah, as I was watching it, rewatching it today, I was kind of watching it and thinking, yeah, I bet Sam Mendes watched this a fair few times. Oh, it yeah. does it does feel like the film that they sanded down a lot of the rough edges for to make American Beauty, which is a film that I kind of like, but I think is is quite uh is not quite deserving of the huge success that it had. Um, because I feel it's kind of derivative of a lot of similar films, and the Ice Storm for me is kind of a a less cartoonish and more kind of achingly sad uh, depiction of real kind of middle class ennui and just kind of that, particularly in in the time period, that sense of an America that is trying to overcome the uh, the turmoils of the nineteen sixties and people trying to reassess normality at the point where the Watergate scandal is going to kind of 
pry open the kind of cultural fissure again and, and create another kind of decade of uh, self-reflection and angst. Mm. Um, and tonally um, and, and stylistically to a degree, I think Matthew Weiner probably saw it, didn't he? I would be very surprised if he didn't. Um, it it has a very kind of it has a similar tone to Mad Men in that it can be achingly sad one minute and really quite funny the next. And um, if we're talking about kind of um, being on the nose with satire, uh, the bit where, <laughs> the bit where Elijah Wood loses his virginity to Christina Ricci, who is wearing a Nixon mask, <laughs> um, <laughs> is uh, it's on the nose, uh, shall we say? Um, but still manages to not be ridiculous. Yeah, I think that it, it's amazing to me, certainly, you know, watching it pretty much immediately after taking Woodstock, is how it's such a darker film, that film, but it's also really funny. And mm. I think that the contrast between how dark and sad and kind of uh, morose it can be and the the jokes that it's making and the, the way it kind of really gets kind of moments of real kind of familial warmth mixed in with you know crumbling marriages is is what makes the comedy stand out and makes it so special yeah and it's a bit of a um uh kind of uh, supporting actors showcase isn't it it's mm. uh um kevin klein is uh, amazing and it's sigourney weaver is also very good elijah wood is quite an early role for him early role as in being in uh a kind of uh, film for grown-ups. Joan Allen, Tobey Maguire. Um, yeah, uh, great cast uh, across the board. There's a kind of a heartbreaking bit at the end. I won't spoil it for anyone with with Kevin Klein and Elijah Wood, uh, which is you know quite beautiful. And Kevin Klein to that point has been uh, kind of not the strongest character you could say, <laughs> uh, especially when it comes to um, uh, any kind of sex party scenes that he's involved in. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, it's kind of a beautiful bit near the end of that. Um, but this film, as much as we're going to talk about it being his, his kind of best film, um, we could have chosen Brokeback Mountain, which is a huge success. Uh, the Ice Storm uh, went down quite badly. Yeah, it didn't make a huge amount of money. And I was actually quite surprised that it didn't get any Oscar nominations because it came in that kind of uh, sweet period where Joan Allen was getting nominated almost every year. Mm-hmm. And she didn't for this one, even though I tell you this is probably one of her best performances. You know, it's one of her kind of warmest, most fragile and, you know, kind of deeply kind of melancholy performances. And Sigourney Weaver, who I, you know, I think is probably the, maybe the strongest. She's kind of the most dominating performance in the whole film. She's terrifying. Yeah, she really is. Um, and But I think she, she I think they, they kind of set her off up as being kind of almost a Mrs. Robinson kind of figure, except she's uh, seducing a man her age instead of uh, a younger man, um, to the extent that the man she's seducing is also named Benjamin. Um, but like she does, I think she gets a lot of uh, complexity out of it there. You kind of get the sense that there is a whole life that has led her to be this kind of uh, kind of brittle and uh, uncompromising in the way that she deals with people in her life. Mm, mm. Um, kind of talking about um, other films that uh, have kind of been influenced by it or have kind of uh, taken a leaf out of his book A Serious Man is another one uh, that mm. feels very much in that kind of milieu yeah and uh, I was I was quite interested to see that this came out the same year as The Sweet Hereafter 
the Anton Egerian film, which uh, I don't think, you know, obviously they came out the same year, so they can't be influenced by each other. But they did share a composer in uh, Michael Danner. And mm-hmm. they also share uh, structural and plot similarities. So I thought that was very, when I was reading into it, that that was very weird that those two films, which deal in a very similar tone, they both have a kind of uh, cyclical structure and they both uh, revolve around a particularly sad and terrible thing happening, uh, came at the same time and shared the same composer. It's probably a bit like that, you know, when um, uh, Saving Private Ryan and Thin Red Line came out and when uh, <laughs> those two Truman Capote films came out, it'd be like, shit, they're rushing a uh, kind of like Watergate era kind of, uh, character study kind of uh, film in let's, let's just knock one out quickly and uh, uh, see who can make the biggest box office bomb because <laughs> that mm. appears to be what they've done um, uh, but also I think the music in the film is really important in establishing its tone mm-hmm. because he makes music that sounds completely alien to the location and the time period it's kind of got very Asian influenced strings it's got kind of uh, tubular bells and stuff going off it sounds very it sounds more like music that you would expect to hear in kind of a samurai epic and I think that that goes a long way to creating a sense of disjointedness and dis- disconnection you know this sense that these characters are all occupying the same place but they're not really communicating with each other mm, mm, yeah I think more people should uh, put um, inappropriate music in their films I think the next time we see a kind of like big budget costume drama, I think they should put like a black exploitation soundtrack over the top. Because, <laughs> um, you know, at this point, try something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, some really great slap bass. Mm. There's no great slap bass. Even, I mean, <laughs> as much of a fan of Seinfeld as I am. So, you know, you, you can't, you can't, I mean, I, like, I'll, I'll, this is where, you know, I'll get confessional. Uh, I used to play in a band uh, when I was an, like a nipper, like when I was like 16, 17. And being at the height of Britpop, which uh, many of our listeners will remember, uh, we were just like playing Blue Tones covers and stuff. But our bass player was like clearly the most talented person in the entire band. And he was just trying to work slap bass, <laughs> bass lines into Blue Tones covers. And you don't want to hear that. That's terrible. Um, so I've got a real aversion to slap bass. Um, and I'm sure Ang Lee has as well. Uh, you've just made me imagine a new version of Pride and Prejudice where someone just goes, Mr. Darcy, and then it just goes... It's the internet, we can make this happen. Yeah, it's it's so easy to create terrible ideas for mashups. Mm, absolutely. Um, so, that's kind of Ang Lee, in a nutshell. Um, uh, we kind of attempted to kind of cover the breadth of his work, because he has done uh, many amazing things, and he is a rare... Uh, artist in the fact that he can kind of um, turn his hand to anything. Uh, his next film uh, that he's making is a film called uh, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, which I, is probably a book, quite well regarded. Um, James Seamus is not on it with him, um, but it does have the kind of tantalising cast of Kristen Stewart, Vin Diesel, Steve Martin and Chris Tucker. And it's going to be shot at 120 frames a second. And for all those people uh, who couldn't get enough of uh, The Hobbit shot at 48 frames a second, this is going to be like three times as good. Um, (laughs) I I can't even conceive of what that's going to look like, Ed. I think it will be probably the closest to real life that you'll probably see on screen, by which I mean that it will look really unspectacular. Mm. 
Uh, and I can understand if they're going for kind of a documentary realism effect, but yeah, it does. It just strikes me as just kind of bizarre. And again, it, it, with the kind of the life of Pi thing, it does seem to be a case where someone suggested to him the idea of working in a high frame rate, and you know, he's just kind of looked at what they were doing with the Hobbits, and he's just like amateurs. Mm, mm. I can go better. Make than people's that. eyes explode. Mm, I can go seventy-two times better than that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, stop trying to make it happen, directors. Um, I can just, I can just picture now James Cameron thinking, "Hang on, hang on, we're almost ready to roll on Avatar two, three, four, or five. Let's hang on, we're going to go one hundred and twenty-one frames per second because Ang Lee <laughs> picked us to it. I mean, really, like, how much better is the is is the quality going to get? And it also, I think it's probably. It seems like I mean I think I said this around about the time that they were they announced the Hobbits were going the Hobbit films were going to be shot in uh, in high frame rate where it seems like the sort of thing where you think this would be great if people were using them to make small experimental films to work out the kinks mm. which I'm sure some people are but when you know established directors are spending hundreds of millions of dollars doing it it just kind of feels like they're showing off and they're making us watch tech demos. Yeah. In when they could be making films in a, a way that isn't weighed down by the the need to prove that a new crazy technology can work. Mm. And I doubt if he made it in 24 frames per second, anyone would be sitting there and, and would be watching it and thinking, do you know what? This film would be fucking awesome if it was shot at 124 frames a second. <laughs> no, one, no one wants that. Do you ever watch The Godfather and think, oh, I wish this was shot at a higher frame rate? No. Do you know what I mean? I do watch Casablanca and just think, oh, imagine what they could have done with 240 frames per second. Mm. Yeah, well, imagine how many more of, of Bogart's crags could have shown <laughs> up on screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, our technical scepticism aside, uh, that's been Ang Lee. Our next uh, artist profile will be with you shortly. Who are we doing next time, Ed? Uh, we're going to break from tradition instead of doing people who are alive and well. Someone who has been dead for quite a while, uh, but someone who has created a lot of great work, someone who, whose uh, work we've talked about in our Alternate 100 episodes a few times, uh, and who's just kind of a very fascinating figure in Hollywood, uh, Burt Lancaster. Burt Lancaster. Um, uh, one of my favourites. Amazing actor. Um, and like I say, dead as disco, so he can't ruin his legacy. Uh, and make our podcast look dated so yeah that'll be next month uh, but we'll be back next week with something else Uh, who knows what that'll be but I'm sure it'll be great Um, in the meantime uh, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me goodbye from me